Um, yeah, everyone's awake now. So uh, I'm going to start reading. <laughs> um, we're reading in Daniel again, uh, 11. I'm going to read 2 to 45. So bear with me. Now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will arise in Persia, and then a fourth will be far richer will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will arise, who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has arisen, his empire will be broken up and parceled out towards the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. The king of the south will become strong, but one of his commander, commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. After some years, they will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north and make an alliance, but she will not retain her power, and he and his power will not last. In those days, she will be betrayed, together with her royal escort, her father, and the one who supported her. One from her family line will arise to take her place. He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. He will also seize their gods, their metal images, their valuable articles of silver and gold, and carry them out of carry them off to Egypt. For some years he will leave the king of the north alone. Then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will retreat to his own country. His sons will prepare for the war and assemble a great army, which will sweep on like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south will march out in a rage and fight against the king of the north, who will raise a large army, but it will be defeated. When the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will slaughter many thousands, yet he will not remain triumphant. For the king of the north will muster another army larger than the first, and after several years, he will advance with the huge army full equipped. In those times, many will rise against the kingdom of the south, those who are violent among your own people who rebel in fulfillment of the vision, but without success. Then the king of the north will come and build up siege ramps and will capture a fortified city. The, force of the, south, the forces of the south will be powerless to resist. Even their best troops will not have the strength to stand. The invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land, and he will have the power to destroy it. He will determine to come with the, he will determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom, and will make an alliance with the king of the south. And he will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom. But his plans will not succeed, or help him. Then he will turn his attention to the coastlands and will take many of them. But a commander will put an end to his insolence and will turn his insolence back on him. After this, he will turn back towards the fortress of his own country, but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. In a few years, however, he will be destroyed, yet not in anger or in battle. He will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure, and he will seize it through intrigue. Then, overwhelming army, then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him, both in and both it and the prince of the covenant will be destroyed. After coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully, 
and with only a few people, he will rise to power. When he receives province, when he reaches provinces, feel, when the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them and will achieve what neither his father nor his forefathers did. He will distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers. He will plot an overthrow of fortress, but only for a time. With a large army, he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south. The king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army, but he will not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him. Those who eat from the king's provisions will try to destroy him. His army will be swept away and many will fall in battle. The two kings with their hearts bent on evil will sit at the same table and lie to each other, but to, to no avail because of the, the end will still come at, at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action against it and then, and then return to his own country. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again, but this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastline will oppose him and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the holy covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the holy covenant. His armed forces will rise up to dis, to dis desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the holy sacrifice, the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abominations that caused desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many, though, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned, or captured, or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help, and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come and the opponent, or at the appointed time. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will say unheard of things against the God of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed. For what he has been determined must, be, must take place. He will show no regard for the God of his ancestors or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any God, but will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a god of fortress, fortress and a god unknown to his ancestors. He will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the might, mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign god and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rule over rulers over many people and will distribute the land at a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage, him, will engage him in battle, and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall. But Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt with the Libyans and Cushites in submission. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him, and he will set out in a great rage to destroy all 
all and annihilate, annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tent between the seas of the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. Good evening, guys. Good to see you. And uh, thank you, Elo, for that nine-minute scripture reading. It's a bit of a long text this evening in Daniel 11. But I trust you guys are having a blessed uh, Pentecost Sunday. Yeah. You're very passive this evening. Having a great Sunday? I was like, when Antonio said before, you know, that we get to sing again, I was like, yeah. Everyone was like, hmm. Awesome, we get to sing out loud and praise our God. Well, we come now in the service to our, our time in the Word. It's great that we have this protected time every Sunday evening in the service where we get to open up um, the Word of God. And we're in Daniel 11 tonight. That means we're rapidly coming in. I don't know if any of you have read ahead in your Bibles. Um, but next, next Sunday, we're at chapter 12, and that means it's the last chapter of Daniel. So I'm sure there'll be mixed emotions here. But uh, yeah, it's been a good time in this uh, challenging book of the Old Testament. So, just in case you weren't here, a very brief recap uh, from last Sunday, one important point. Um, Brandon introduced uh, the text and he, he pointed out the fact that these last three chapters of Daniel, uh, 10, 11, and 12, are a, a one final vision in three parts. And, and last Sunday, if you were here, you'll know that we focused on the reality of the spiritual realm and our interaction uh, with that realm, namely through humble steadfast, faithful prayer like Daniel. And so this evening we continue and we've just heard it read to us now, this second great portion of the vision in Daniel chapter 11, 2 through 45. Now, just at the outset, I want to refresh our memories. Uh, Brandon refreshed our memories last week, and, but um, just to go back even further, um, back to when we looked at chapter 7, so what's that, four weeks ago, I wanted to, to tell you why, what is the purpose of these prophecies in the book of Daniel? Sorry, and that's going to be important for us this evening. And I gave you three reasons, and they are, to refresh us, here they are again. Firstly, these, all of these prophecies from Daniel 7 through 12 are given to the faithful remnant of the Jewish people uh, as a prophecy concerning when Messiah will come, concerning when Messiah will come. So, just make a mental note of that for a moment. Secondly, they're given to encourage and warn, both encourage and warn the faithful remnant during the intervening years of tribulation, of difficulty. This tribulation that the, that the people of God will endure under the rule of pagan world empires. And thirdly, they're given to assure them, despite these pagan empires ruling, these prophecies are given to assure the people of God of the ultimate victory of Messiah, that at the end of the day, Messiah, God's Messiah, will be victorious and the kingdom of God will inherit all dominion and all power in this world and it will be taken away from all world empires and satanic forces. So, those, that's the, we've got to be thinking about these things as we go through these texts. That's the reason for these prophecies because they can be very intricate and very distant from us and I'm sure that, I mean, you would not be uh, alone here if you felt that way after that reading. Now, there are three things to take note of from Daniel chapter 11, three important things that we could take away from this chapter tonight. The first one would be the fulfillment of prophecy, the fulfillment of prophecy. The second one would be a possible reference to Antichrist, a possible reference to Antichrist. And the third thing we could take away tonight would be an application for us today as the people of God based on the experience of the people of God in this chapter. So we can look at what happened to the people of God in Daniel 11 and based on their experience we could draw application for us today as the people of God. Now, you might have guessed from that already, I'm going to place the focus tonight on that third takeaway, on that third takeaway. This is I've done a lot of reading, I have to say, uh, for this uh, message. 
um, it can be overwhelming the amount of background information and history that you can read when studying the book of Daniel. But after praying, I feel that this, I sense that this is the most useful, most urgent, most relevant to us here at Calvary Chapel Freiburg at Church at Five at this point. The, the, the takeaway, the application from the people of God then for us as the people of God now. And so, having said that, it's always a little bit risky to offer a prediction at the outset of a sermon, but this may be a difficult word, so I'll just let you guys know that at the start. But before we jump into that application, I do want to very briefly comment on the other two takeaways and encourage you, uh, if you do have questions, you can definitely come up and speak to me or Brandon uh, after the message. Now, Brandon's been hitting the books on this one too. So, fulfilled prophecy. This text is one of the most, in fact, some commentators say, the most specific fulfilled prophecy in all of Scripture, kind of in one in one place. Obviously, we have many, many Scriptures fulfilled in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, but if we take them one chapter at a time, kind of all together, this is one of the most specific fulfilled prophecies in all of Scripture. The text is so detailed, as you would have heard, that's why it can be so complex, it's so detailed, it speaks with amazing precision of events that did transpire exactly as predicted. So again, the vision Daniel is given is to remind or to, to inform faithful Jewish people, to give them a prophecy on when Messiah will come and to warn them and encourage them during that intervening, those intervening centuries under the, pagan, under the rule of pagan empires. So in that sense, this vision, just very briefly now, concerns the aftermath of the conquests of Alexander the Great in the Hellenistic period. Hellenistic, that's a word to remember, that is the, the Greekification, we could say, of the world after Alexander's conquest. It's a fascinating period of history, it's great, if you're interested in history, no doubt you already know that and you already love it. But these prophecies concern two of the four parts of Alexander's empire, we've looked at this in chapter 7 and chapter 8, the two largest and most powerful and most enduring parts, namely the Seleucid Empire of Syria and the Ptolemaic Kingdom of Egypt. And the reason is, if you think about a map of the Near East, the Middle East now, what land, what country lies between Syria in the north and Egypt in the south? That would be the Holy Land, Israel. And so, obviously, the, the, the wars and fighting between these two empires uh, concern the people of God in the Holy Land. And so in our text tonight, the rulers from this northern Greek-speaking kingdom, Seleucid Empire in Syria, they were termed the kings of the north, and the rulers from the southern Ptolemaic kingdom of Egypt, the Greek-speaking kingdom of Egypt, of whom the last was Cleopatra, yes, of that fame, they are termed the kings of the south. And so this prophecy, this vision, drives the history of the world and the history of God's people all the way down to 175 BC and the reign of a certain king of the north, and we need to remember his name, his name will be on the test, his name is Antiochus or Antichus IV and he bears the, the name or the nickname we might say Epiphanes, Antiochus IV, Antiochus IV Epiphanes and we'll come back to him in a moment. So, all of these verses from verse 2 through 35, I'm not going to do it now, you can come up afterwards and I can show you further notes, can be compared with the Greek and Jewish histories that were written down and can be seen to be fulfilled in detail all down through the centuries and the decades, down through Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And after verse 35, that's the end of Antiochus' reign, there's a gap in the text. You might, if you've got your Bible open, you'll see there's often a gap, there might be a new uh, paragraph and a new subject heading, and another king is spoken of, together in fact with two other kings through verse 45, those last nine verses. And this brings us to the second takeaway which we could focus on but we're not going to. Because there's that gap in the text and because another king is spoken of, not Antichus, many have said that this is a possible reference to Antichrist. It's clear from history and from the biblical text that these nine verses, verses 36 through 45, don't continue to describe the life of Antichus IV. And so the question is, who do they describe? 
If we then move to the beginning of chapter 12, the third part of the vision, which Brandon will unlock for us next Sunday, a text there in the beginning of chapter 12, if you just skim over it with your eyes now, if you do have your Bibles open, we won't read it now though. This text at the beginning of chapter 12 concerns either the first coming of Messiah, the first coming of Christ, Jesus, or else the second coming of the Messiah of Jesus. And if you, if you remember, that's what these prophecies are about. Daniel is giving vision to tell the people when will Messiah come. Now, if you were here when we looked at Daniel 7, you'll remember that I gave you four frameworks for understanding prophecy, reading prophecy and interpreting it, prophecy. And so, just very briefly now, the preterist view, remember, preterist has to do with past This view says that most of the prophecies we read in Daniel, Ezekiel, Revelation have already been fulfilled up through the first century in the first coming of Christ. This view would see that verses 36 through 44 of our chapter tonight, that they referred or they were fulfilled in the line of Roman emperors around the coming of Christ from Julius Caesar through to um, Titus who destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD and indeed through the lines, the, the line of Herods. There are four King Herods that the New Testament knows. And if we remember, it was King Herod who tried to wipe out the Messiah by killing the infants at Bethlehem. So that would be the preterist understanding. This is not a reference to Antichrist, but this refers to the Roman Caesars, indeed uh, Herod and his line who ruled in Judea. And the futurist view, just to differentiate and give some clarity here, obviously that concerns the future. This view would see that these verses, 36 through 45, are in fact fulfilled or will be fulfilled in the future, in a future antichrist, that is a figure in whom we, what we might say evil is personified, who will appear at some point in the future prior to the return of Christ. And under this view, Antichrist IV, Epiphanes, is a type or a, a foreshadowing of Antichrist. So, we're supposed to look at Antichrist's life, see how he behaved, see how he was evil and unrighteous and ungodly, and that should give us a, a sense of what to expect when Antichrist appears. Now, last thing to say about this, again, if you've got questions, please come and ask me after, but I've read convincing and detailed explanations of both interpretations and I should just say, should just say in any case, the, the future expectation of Antichrist doesn't rest on this text. It's not like if this text was fulfilled in the Roman Caesars and, and in the line of Herod, in the Herodian line, that therefore there's no more expectation of Antichrist. Okay, so with that being said, let's jump in now and focus on verses 21 through 35, which speak of Atticus IV, Epiphanes. Now, he was the king of Seleucid Empire in Syria, but if you remember, he was of, a Gre- he was of Greek extraction, he was Greek-speaking, uh, the same in the Ptolemaic Kingdom of Egypt. The, the, the elite, the upper classes in all of these empires were Greek-speaking, and indeed, they were spreading Greek culture and language and ideas and philosophy throughout the world. That's the reason why, if you read your New Testament in the original language, you won't read it in Hebrew, or the Aramaic of Daniel, but you'll read it in Greek. Let's, so let's jump in and focus on verses 21 through 35, which speak of Antichrist the Fourth Epiphanies. Now, we can't go through every verse, still too many, but I want to look with you tonight at why this text matters, and I want to set the focus on the enduring application of this text to us as the people of God in this time. So, in verse 21 of our text, we see now a notable ruler arising in the Seleucid northern kingdom, and he is Atticus IV Epiphanes. Let's look at verse 21, and we read there, he, that is the predecessor, he will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure, and he will seize it through intrigue. Atticus is here not called by this heavenly messenger speaking to Daniel, giving him this vision. Atticus is not called a king, he's denied the honor of royalty. 
And he's called here a contemptible, older translations might have, vile. He's called a contemptible and vile person. If we look at the histories now, Antiochus' brother, who was king, was killed while Antiochus was in Athens, traveling on his way back from Rome. And he rushed back after he heard that his brother had died, and he seized the kingdom, took it away from his nephew, the son of his brother, who would have been the rightful heir. And so numerous times, he's, so he, it's very clear from the start, he's a usurper, he's not deserving of the honor of royalty. Numerous times in this text tonight, we're told that Anarchus IV is full of flattery, verse 32, he's a master of intrigue, verse 22, he acts deceitfully, verse 23, he's full of lying and plotting evil, verse 27. So we can, when we think of Anarchus IV, and in fact, you can find him on Wikipedia, there's a nice, you can, there's even a picture of a nice marble bust there of Anarchus, looking very Greek and very noble for you to check out if you are interested. But basically, we can think of Anarchus as the, the consummate political animal. He says all the right things, he's smooth as silk, his lips are as smooth as butter, there's just honey dripping from them. And all the while, he's maneuvering and plotting for power and influence, seeking conquest, seeking, to, seeking more power than, than his own empire already provided him with, and he is brutal as he does so. Now, obviously, Anarchus had many dealings in his career with many nations, but he's called here vile and contemptible primarily because of his dealings with the people of God, with the people of Israel, with the, the Jewish remnant who had returned to the Holy Land. He didn't respect the ways of the Jews as his father, also called Anarchus, had done. And the way it played out for the way it played out is recorded for us in the verses 22 through 35. Now, basically, let me just I'm going to summarize the first couple of verses, and then we'll pick it up at verse 28. Basically, these verses describe two wars. And again, if you want to look this up in the secular histories, this is the Sixth Syrian War. It's called. Basically, these verses describe two wars between Antiochus Epiphanes from Syria coming down to fight and invade Egypt. The first war he won, but he wasn't able to, 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 to sort of drive the victory home. He had to leave without really having brought the final victory. And so the idea that we need to take is that right from the start, Atticus, uh, as he was kind of passing back and forth through the Holy Land, he never liked the godly, faithful Jews. And so on the way back from his first Egyptian campaign, he stopped, uh, as it were, to top up his bank account by plundering the temple at Jerusalem. Look with me here at verse 28. Verse 28. There we read, the king of the north, so that is Antiochus, he is from the northern Seleucid kingdom, its capital at Antioch, which is where the king names come from. King of the north will return to his own country, so travel from Egypt up towards Syria with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the Holy Covenant. That refers to the, the temple and the city of Jerusalem. He will take action against it and then return to his own country. So this was a bad sign to start off with, but we get the idea, even from the secular histories, even from historians such as Josephus, who wrote a history of the Jewish people, that, that Anarchus had never liked the faithful, godly Jews. So he plunders Jerusalem once, and then he heads back to Syria. And a year later, he's still frustrated and angry. You get the feeling from reading this text that he's just a generally angry kind of guy. And so a year later, because he didn't manage to get that final victory, he, he tries to invade Egypt again. Look at verse 29. At the appointed time... So this is 168 BC. At the appointed time, he will invade the south, Egypt, again. But this time, the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western, coastland, western coastlands will oppose him, and he will lose heart. His second Egyptian campaign goes very badly. It results in total defeat, or we could really say that the swords weren't even drawn because of 
Roman intervention. Rome, in, in the meantime, had allied itself or was certainly protecting Egypt as a very rich province, did not want Egypt to fall into Atticus' hands. Those are the ships mentioned here from the western coastlands. The prophets continually refer to Greece and Rome, the, the western Mediterranean, as the western coastlands or the islands. And in fact, um, one of the most famous incidents of Roman diplomacy took place in this campaign. And I, I first read about this many years ago. Are there any Roman history buffs here, people who love Roman history? Wow. Gee, that felt flat. Maybe I shouldn't tell you, <laughs> after all. No, I will tell I first heard about it in a, in a podcast many years ago, but I, when I listened to a few sermons on this text, I was like, everyone seems to mention it, so... I might as well mention it too. Anyway, Atticus was kind of heading up the beach at Alexandria with his army, Alexandria being the, cap the, the, the capital of Egypt, and a Roman ambassador met Atticus on the beach. And as I said before, Atticus had been in Rome before, he'd been a hostage, he, he, you know, he, was, he knew his way around the eternal city, and he knew this guy, and he was like expecting a, you know, a warm welcome and a hug. And uh, this Roman ambassador, who was unaccompanied, there was no Roman army with him at the time, he just marched up to Atticus on the beach and said, declared, hey, Egypt is off limits. You've got to get out of here. We're not going to let you have Egypt. And Anarchus, as it's recorded, then tried to stall for time. He wanted time to confer with his officers and work out a plan. And so he asked the ambassador for time. And so famously, this Roman legate, this Roman ambassador, took a stick and drew a circle in the sand right around Anarchus' feet and said, uh, have an answer for me before you step out of that circle. That's kind of... Roman diplomacy right there for you. Awesome. I hope that little story encourages many of you to get into history. Why tell you this, guys? Why tell you this? Well, it's an interesting and fascinating story, especially, as I said, if you do love history. Does anyone actually love... Okay, leave Roman history aside. Does anyone actually like history here? Okay, I'm a bit relieved. I'm a bit relieved. It is fascinating and, uh, and interesting, um, especially if we love history, to see how the histories that have come down to us in, uh, you know, through other sources, such as the Greek uh, histor historians, Herodotus, for example, how they, how they um, connect together with biblical history. But, but it's, it's, it's particularly interesting for us this evening and, and important for us, even if we don't enjoy history, because of the application that it has for us as the people of God down to this day. This text that we're about to read is a, a loud warning about the people of God conforming themselves to the world, abandoning true faith and worship, and therefore even coming under the judgment of God. I'll say that again, the text we're about to read and, and, and unlock a bit more is a, is a loud warning to us today as the people of God about the danger of conforming ourselves to the world, abandoning true faith and worship, and therefore even coming under the judgment of God. This is challenging, but it's something that we need to be aware of, and this, I think this is certainly relevant for us today. So, this, is, this Roman hubris from this ambassador enraged Antiochus, or Atticus. He was already an angry guy, but he got even more angry, and he turned around in Egypt to head home. Look with me at verse 30, the second part, and we'll pick up the story. Daniel's vision predicts he, Atticus, will turn back, verse 30, part B, he will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant, that is the city and people of Jerusalem. He will return to Jerusalem, that is, and show favour to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and abolish the daily sacrifice in the temple. They'll set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those people who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they'll fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. And when they fall, they'll receive a little help. Many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified and made spotless until the time of the end for it will still come at the appointed time. So basically what happens is Antiochus turns around on that Egyptian beast, beach, I should say, beast, what a Freudian slip, and all hell breaks loose as he comes back 
up past Jerusalem. There's desecrations, massacres, and corruptions as he takes out his fury and his anger on Jerusalem. Atticus IV was a vile and contemptible person, a pagan ruler, a corrupt person. This was a terrible time for Jerusalem and for the people of God. Jesus references this time, it had, it had gone into the psyche of the people, He references it in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24, warning the people of Israel of a future destruction, namely in 70 AD, that would be like unto this destruction. But, but I want you to notice this, when He returned to vent His fury on Jerusalem, it was not indiscriminate. It was not just anybody in this city, I will kill. Anything in this place, I will destroy it. The temple was desecrated and the daily sacrifice was abolished, but, verse 30, he wanted to show favour to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. When Antiochus IV came to Jerusalem, he wanted to show favour to those Jewish people who forsake the Holy Covenant, who were not true to the covenant that God had made with their nation. Anarchist IV had made a policy, you can read this in the secular histories, of imposing Greek culture. It's what's called Hellenization from the Greek, Hellas is the Greek name for Greece. So, Hellenization is to make people Greek. He was famous for this policy of imposing Greek culture on the Jewish people and of suppressing Jewish culture. In other words, under this policy, you couldn't dress like a Jewish person anymore. You couldn't speak Hebrew or Aramaic anymore. You couldn't worship according to the Jewish custom anymore. Instead, you must dress in the Greek style, speak Greek, worship Greek gods, and enjoy Greek entertainment. The theater or wrestling in the gymnasium or public bathing in the baths that were built. Now, how did this go down with the Jewish people? How did this policy of Hellenization go down with the Jewish people? This may surprise you, I'm not sure, but many of the people in Jerusalem were fully on board with this policy, and they were more than happy to go along with it. If you think about it, even today, Greek culture and literature, art, architecture, sculpture, philosophy, they were seen as modern, as attractive, as socially advantageous, progressive, forward-thinking. This, this is the new world, guys. This is the new era. This is going to take us into a new, uh, a new um, phase of our history, away from all of that superstitious, smoky, bloody stuff from Mount Sinai. That's a bit all... That's a bit old, it's a bit backwards. Many of the people were fully on board with this Greek culture. And so what may shock you, and what we need to know, is that by the time Anarchus IV, who wasn't, you know, he wasn't particularly concerned in one sense with the Jewish people, but after he lost the war with Egypt and the Romans were kind of you know, building up their fortresses there, uh, in Egypt, he was like, I really need a strong southern province on my, on my southern border, and so I'm going I'm to make sure that this province is fully on board with my Greek culture. So, when he made the decision to impose this stuff, the people of God were already divided, and those who had brought in Greek culture in a big way, who had abandoned Jewish faith and worship and practice, they weren't like the university professors they were the high priests. They were the high priests of God's temple. They were the church leaders, if you will. These were the ones who forsook the Holy Covenant and to whom Atticus showed great favour. I want to show you this by quoting, I, I asked Jonas before the service, unfortunately we do not have a, uh, a translation available to you, otherwise we could put it up on the screen, but I'm going to show you by quoting from the book of 2nd Maccabees, named after a Jewish family whose sons, all seven of them, fought back. They, they initiated a rebellion against Antiochus. They were called Maccabees after their leader, one of the sons, Judas Maccabeus, which means Judas the Hammer. 
You may have heard of 1st and 2nd Maccabees. They are part of the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Old Testament canon because they are included in the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament into Greek. And certainly they're useful and they're largely accurate historical books. The account that I'm going to read to you is historically uh, accurate. But they were never part of the Jewish canon of Scriptures and therefore you won't find them in Protestant Bibles. They're not regarded by the Protestant churches as inspired Scripture, but Luther and the other Reformers recommended that they be used as useful for instruction, just not for establishing doctrine. So I'm going to record, they record the history of this time, and I'm going to read you a couple of excerpts from 2 Maccabees. Remember Daniel, his vision is at 550 BC. Maccabees is written after these events, sometime after 167 BC. So let's pick it up in 2 Maccabees chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. And pay attention as I read now. When Atticus, who was called Epiphanes, succeeded to the kingdom, Jason, the brother of Onias, the high priest, obtained the high priesthood by corruption. He went and promised Atticus at an interview 360 talents of silver and from another source of revenue 80 talents. In addition to this, he promised to pay 150 more if permission were given by Atticus to establish by his authority a gymnasium and a body of youth for it and to enroll the people of Jerusalem as citizens of Antioch. When the king assented and Jason came to office, he at once shifted his compatriots over to the Greek way of life. So just let me explain here. Jason had a Hebrew name, that was Joshua. He was the brother, his brother was the high priest, Onias, and Onias was a faithful high priest. But, J, but Joshua took a Greek name, Jason. He went up to Antioch in Syria, to, Epiph, to Antiochus Epiphanes, and off his own bat, this wasn't Antiochus coming down to Jerusalem trying to mess things up. This was Jason going up there and he says, look, I've got all of this cash, I'll pay you if you make me high priest. And by the way, when I become high priest, I want to establish a gymnasium. Now, gymnasium comes from the, the Greek meaning naked, that's not necessarily a criticism in its, of itself, but the idea of wrestling naked in a gymnasium is not immediately what you think of when you think of high priestly priorities. At least, that's not what I, I think. And he said he wants to enroll the citizens of Jerusalem as Antioch, and he wants to get rid of their allegiance to God and to the, the covenant with Moses and put them on the same uh, citizenship plan as those in Antioch. We pick it up uh, a few verses later in verse 13. The writer of Maccabees says this, there was such an extreme of Hellenization, an increase in the adoption of foreign ways because of the surpassing wickedness of Jason, who was ungodly and no true high priest. That, this was how bad it got, the priests were no longer intent upon their service at the altar. Despising the sanctuary and neglecting the sacrifices, they hurried to take part in unlawful proceedings in the wrestling arena and discus throwing, disdaining the honors prized by their Jewish ancestors and putting the highest value on Greek forms of prestige. You get what's happening here. The priests are no longer interested in performing proper worship that honors God. They're more interested in going and doing some naked wrestling and discus throwing. They put more value on Greek forms of prestige rather than being the pray at the rather than being praised, sorry, I should say, by their own God. Jason then sent a guy called Menelaus uh, to carry another Jewish person, even though he had a Greek name, to carry tribute to Anicus. You know, he had to pay off all of that bribery that he'd promised him. But Menelaus, when he got to Antioch, he used the money to buy the priesthood for himself as you do. Maccabeus, sorry, Maccabees, the book, says that this Menelaus possessed no qualification for the priesthood, had a hot temper, and acted as a cruel tyrant and a savage beast. Just let me open a, a short side note there. Beware of pastors that have no qualification for the pastorate, have a hot temper, and act as cruel tyrants and savage beasts. You don't want to go to a church like that, all right? He then proceeded to take the sacred vessels from the temple. I mean, we don't have many sacred vessels here at a, at a free church, but imagine for a moment that if, if, I, you know, if I took the, 
the, the, the communion elements and just sent them away to a pagan king. When the true high priest, Onias, rebuked Menelaus, Menelaus had him murdered. In the confusion, Jason, who'd kind of been booted out because Menelaus had kind of done an outside run on him, he picked up a bunch of guys and tried to retake Jerusalem by force. And this confusion uh, reached Antichus in terms of the message he was given was that Jerusalem is in rebellion against you. And Antichus being the mild, patient, gentle man that he was, no, of course not, Antichus was full of rage and he marched on Jerusalem and Maccabee, Maccabee says this, 2 Maccabees 5, 12 and 13, Antichus commanded his soldiers to cut down relentlessly everyone they met and to kill those who went into their houses. There was a massacre of young and old, destruction of boys, women and children, the slaughter of young girls and infants. Well, what do you think happened after that? What happened after that was that he was welcomed with open arms by Menelaus, the so-called high priest, who guided him into the most holy temple on Temple Mount, and he, you know, showed Anarchus around, and Anarchus helped himself to another load of gold. Why, thank you, Menelaus. He then headed back to Syria, and within a short time, he sent an ambassador to compel the Jews, but not that Menelaus needed convincing, he sent an ambassador to compel the Jews to no longer live by the law of God, no longer live by the law of Moses, but instead to set up an image of the Olympian god Zeus in the temple. That's what we read of concisely in these verses that we've read tonight in Daniel 11. Let me conclude this story with one final quote from 2 Maccabees. Chapter 6, verse 3 through 6, harsh and utterly grievous was the onslaught of evil. The temple was filled with debauchery and reveling by the peoples who dallied with prostitutes, had intercourse with women within the sacred precincts, and besides brought in things for sacrifice that were unfit. The altar was covered with abominable offerings that were forbidden by the laws. People could neither keep the Sabbath nor observe the festivals of their ancestors, nor so much as confess themselves to be Jews. And it was this situation which provoked the revolt of Judas Maccabeus and his brothers and the rest, as they say, is history for another time. But this is important. Understand that in all of his evil, Anicus was supported and indeed encouraged by a religious establishment, religious leaders who were thoroughly corrupt and full of unbelief because they had abandoned the faith handed down to them and been fully conformed to the godless pagan culture and worldview around them. That is what happened. And this is relevant for us today. And this is where it might get a little uncomfortable. Looking out at the visible church now, not this church or this service, Church at Five, but at the visible church in our country, in of Germany or in our culture here in the West, what do we see? What do we see when we look at the people of God, the visible church, today? Let me speak prophetically for a moment. Let me speak prophetically as a prophet, if you will. I don't think it's too far-fetched to say that we see today in many places a religious establishment and church leaders who are full of unbelief, who have abandoned the faith that has been handed down to them and have indeed conformed themselves to the godless pagan culture and worldview of today. Now, what do I mean when I say that or when I make that claim? Before I answer that, let me make three brief clarifications. In speaking this way and in the way I'm about to speak, I'm speaking prophetically. That is what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to hold the, the Word of God up as a mirror for our churches or the visible church and society to look at and therefore I'm speaking genuinely. I'm not taking a swipe at some, you know, at any individual little, you know, Bible-believing, fundamental, uh, Pentecostal, Baptist church. That's not what we're doing here. Holding up a mirror for the whole of the church to look at. Second clarification, a sermon like this do not misunderstand, a sermon like this is not the same as a pastoral counseling meeting. 
A sermon like this is not the same as a pastoral counseling meeting. Jesus Christ, have you noticed that, spoke very harshly against the corruption and sin of religious leaders and of society. But when repentant sinners came to him personally, he showed great mercy and patience. But he did so without changing his teaching, without lessening the authority of the Word of God. It was the same Jesus, our Good Shepherd, who said this, Matthew 5, 28, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart, and if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. That's what the Good Shepherd said in public. But he said this in private, John chapter 8, verses 10 and 11, woman, Woman, he said, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and sin no more. So a sermon like this is not the same as a pastoral counseling meeting. Make that clear. And thirdly, it's our job as pastors to tell you things that you may not particularly want to hear. I would hope that you respond with something like this, maybe. Thank God, my pastors actually have the guts to tell me what the Bible really says and be faithful to Jesus and not ashamed of His words. That would be good. But if you do have questions, I want to assure you, if you do have questions, that is fine. I want, I, I want to invite you to talk to us, talk to myself and Brandon after the service. You may think I'm overreacting and I say some of these things. And if that's the case, then we can sit down together over a beer in two years' time and laugh about how, you know, Pastor Sam, you overreacted that time, didn't he? But I don't think I'm overreacting. So, what do I mean? What do I see? I see that the visible church here in the West is a church marked by unbelief in many ways. Unbelief in the Word of God, unbelief in the promises of God, a lack of reverent awe and healthy fear of Almighty God and His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And some of this unbelief goes deep. And so, what I'm saying is what we see in Daniel is what I see today in the visible church. Let me say a few things. Again, come up to me and speak to me if you've got questions. The church does not believe the Word of God on origins. The church, in many ways, chooses instead to believe in evolution, which is a Gnostic pagan myth of self-creation, self-determination, and gradual self-improvement. The glory due to the Creator is stolen and given to the creature as it mindlessly rearranges itself over and over again. The church does not believe in the Word of God on humanity, or to use the biblical term, mankind. We are being asked to affirm and celebrate in today's church, in today's society, that we're no longer created by God. In the image of God is male or female, but we in fact may recreate ourselves in our own image and redefine who we are. We're told to affirm, in fact, and celebrate the mutilation of people's bodies, including those of children, and to conform to their own delusions. And if we don't celebrate, not just tolerate, but if we don't celebrate this, then, that's told, then we're told that that's violence and we're dangerous haters and we need to be shut down. The church doesn't believe the Word of God on men and women, male and female. We've rejected the truth in many ways that God has created us as men and women all the way down to the essence of our being. Instead, we often see male and female as superficial labels, Indeed, they're interchangeable nowadays that have at most very little to tell us about who we are, how God has made us, and how we're called to live for God in family, church, and society. The church doesn't believe the Word of God on marriage and family and children. You notice there is a pattern here. I think it's the issue of human sexuality and human identity which are at the, the midst of the fire at the moment. Rejecting the definition from God of one man and one woman for life to the exclusion of all others for the raising up of godly children as the basic unit of civilization for the extension of the kingdom of God through the church in all the earth. We're ignoring, in some sense, the crisis we have in marriages, families, the crisis of fatherlessness because we don't believe in the Word of God, but we do believe in social work. The church does not believe the Word of God on sin, salvation, and damnation. We see sinners today more as victims and addicts who need therapy and counseling rather than repentance and transformation. Again, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying there's no place for therapy and counseling. 
But we act ultimately as if salvation is unconditional. Faith is just a bonus. How could God possibly not save all? God accepts and loves everybody, don't you know? And I think the last year has shown us that the visible church, it's kind of ironic, has far more fear of COVID-19 than healthy fear of God. The irony is that churches are filled with, on the one hand, gullible belief. Anytime someone claims, hey, God called me, God called me to do and go, sorry, God told me to go and do this cool Bible school stuff. Oh, wow. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But on the other hand, I see in so many conversations with people, even at our church, there's a restless doubt and indecision and confusion on what God wants for my life. All the while we're living and making choices that show we're ignoring and not believing. Dare I say, maybe we're being disobedient to the clear, revealed Word of God. The church visible, in my view, is far more concerned with political correctness, social justice, and environmentalism than with the proclamation of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the salvation this good news brings. And once we've got these things down with the proclamation of the gospel, then we can be concerned with speaking the truth in love rather than political correctness, We can be concerned with biblical justice rather than social justice, and we can concern ourselves with creation stewardship rather than environmentalism. I don't know if this upsets you. Um, It could upset you in different ways, but I think the only hope, we have to understand this, the only hope for the people of God then as for now is Messiah, Jesus Christ, the one to whom Daniel's visions are pointing. That's the end of my prophetic little rant at you guys. My question now to, fin- to finish is, what do we do? What do we do as part of the visible church in Germany and in our culture? What do you do? Well, let me finish by drawing our attention back to Daniel chapter 11. Verse 32, Daniel chapter 11 and verse 32. When all of this comes upon Jerusalem, Atticus comes and he brings to a head what's already been going on through the leadership, the corrupt religious leadership of the people of God, this is what happens in verse 32. The people of God, but sorry, but the people who know their God will firmly resist. Verse 33, those who are wise will instruct many. In verse 35, some of the wise will be stumble, sorry, will stumble so they may be refined and purified. So we, we get three things here from Daniel. The people who know their God will firmly resist, and those who are wise will instruct many. So here's the word of application that I give to you from my whole heart, for, for you and for our church, and indeed for all of the visible church in our culture. Firstly, know your God. Know your God. I, I heard it very recently in a, in a little input, in a little devotional, but we have to make sure that our relationship with God is our number one priority. That it's more important than any other relationship, even perhaps with our partner or spouse. The implication here from Daniel is clear. Those who forsook God's law, who forsook the Holy Covenant, and indeed not only forsook it, they violated it. That is, they didn't live by the word of the covenant. They don't know God. Because the people who do know their God don't go along with this. They don't go along with the forsaking and all of the nonsense. They resist. So the first thing is this, resolve in in this day, in this time, in this building, in this service right now, resolve to know your God, to make your relationship with God the number one priority, to make sure you know the true God and know His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. That means we need to know God as He really is and not as we wish Him to be. John Calvin called the human heart an idle factory. That is not a factory doing nothing, in that sense idle, but an idle factory. Our hearts are experts at making false gods and idols for us to worship. We often try and create a God in our own image who's really kind to us and accepts all our opinions and kind of papers over all our sins. No, We need to know God as He really is. We need to know the true God. We need to pursue God. 
through our Savior, Jesus Christ, make that the most important relationship. The way we do this is firstly through His revelation in the Word of God, which is why the Word of God has such a treasured place here at this church. Without the Word of God, there can be no knowledge of God. But God isn't silent and He speaks to us that we might know Him. And secondarily, we know God through being part of His people, through being part of the church. So if you want to be the kind of Christian that doesn't forsake the Holy Covenant, that doesn't get swept along with the madness of our age, then you need to know God on His terms. That means you need to read the Word of God, seeking Christ, submitting to all God reveals, and seeking out the fellowship of the church, fellow Christians, to live this life with. Secondly, be instructed and be taught. Be taught and instructed the Word of God. In times like these, as Daniel says in verse 33, the wise will instruct many. We need more than devotional Bible reading. We need instruction in all that the Word of God teaches. The Bible is not primarily a devotional book for private prayer. It speaks with authority and insight and wisdom and clarity on all of life. It lays down foundations, strong, stable, trustworthy foundations for human society and human flourishing, that it may go well with you and that you would live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. It addresses family, marriage, children, household, raising kids, making money, work, learning, tax, the state, government, liberty, laws, the church, worship, truth, origins, philosophy, practical living, wisdom, conflict, sex, nations, war, beauty, art, love, compassion, mercy, grace, salvation, and on and on it goes. You want to find those who are wise who will instruct you. This I'm referring to in this, in our day, refers to pastors, duly called and ordained, qualified men who fear God and know the Word and are not afraid to teach it. And I think I can say this, that's what Brandon and I, and did the other pastors here at Calvary Chapel Freiburg, we strive to be that for you. Our firm promise here is to teach you the Christian faith as it's been once and for all handed down by the apostles to the best we can, but we're not perfect. And would you pray for us as we do that? But it's not just pastors. There are those who are wise in years and mature in faith, mentors, parents. Paul writes to Titus, the older women should teach the younger women. Same for the men. So come to church, but don't just come here. Invest, take on responsibility, serve humbly, be invested in by the pastors and by the leaders here at Church at Five. Don't be content to remain ignorant in Christ's school at this time. So know your God be instructed, and thirdly and finally, resist. Verse 32, the people who know their God will firmly resist. They won't go with the flow. They won't be swept away. They've been instructed so they know what God's Word says and what the stakes are. And when everyone else is going mad, welcoming tyrants and having sex in the sanctuary, they resist firmly. They don't budge They're like that house that Jesus talked about, built upon the rock. That is what I want to be. That's what we want to be. That's what we need to be, and that's by by God's grace, may it be what we are, what we become. That means you need to draw lines in the sand now, just to take that Roman ambassador. We need to draw lines in the sand now. The last year should have taught you this much. It certainly did me. Advice that I received, someone gave to me, I gladly give to you now. And it's advice, I think, of a particular relevance. Ponder this for anyone who is heading towards a career in public service, but increasingly also for the corporate world. This is the advice. Quote, wake up every morning fully and completely prepared to throw away your career that day. Absolutely everything needs to be on the altar. You should know what line you are not going to cross no matter what and be fully prepared for the consequence when you refuse to cross it. It might be that you refuse to lie for a superior or a boss. It might be that you refuse to teach anti-Christian worldview to kids or students. It might be refusing to allow the speech and language you use, even about your faith in Christ, to be controlled and mandated by head office. It might be refusing to implement ordinances or laws which go against the constitution of this country. You need to draw lines now and be prepared to stand up for them. 
That's where we need each other too. The fellowship of church membership, looking out for and strengthening each other. Now, I think if you've been paying attention as we've gone through this book, and if you've listened to what Brandon has said again and again, you'll know who fits all these three things. This is the model that this book gives us to follow, and it's Daniel himself. Let me invite the worship team to come back up as we finish. All through this book, all through his long career, Daniel was in a foreign land, serving at the court of foreign pagan rulers, whom from God's point of view were seen as terrifying, ravenous beasts. Daniel was surrounded by people with a different worldview, who had no fear of God, didn't live by his word, in fact, quite the opposite. Yet as we've seen, Daniel stayed true. Daniel was undefiled. If you haven't heard it yet, let me encourage you on the podcast to go back and find the sermon, Undefiled, Daniel chapter 1, that Brandon preached back last year. I think, I think it's counted to be one of the top sermons from this series. Daniel was undefiled. He resolved to know his God, even in a foreign land. He humbled himself in prayer. He sought the fellowship of faithful friends. He set his mind to understand God's Word. And Daniel and his friends resisted firmly. He didn't give in to temptation to eat the king's food, which was against God's law. He remained undefiled. He didn't fear man, not even the king threatening to kill him, but he feared God. He drew his lines in the sand. He would not bow down to worship idols, nor would he cease his worship of God, even when it was forbidden by the king. In all these things, Daniel remained faithful. And that's my prayer, Lord, let this be true of us as the people of God in our day. Let me conclude now with an encouragement. Again and again in Daniel, we see this at work. This is to encourage you. I know this might have been hard, it might have been challenging, but this is what we can draw from the whole book of Daniel. Those who trust in God and obey His Word, though trials and testing come, they will be vindicated and they will enter into Messiah Jesus' kingdom. Amen.